Go ahead and be seated. I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John chapter 17 as we continue our series this morning through the Gospel of John, finishing chapter 17 this morning. Um, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 26. Again, there's Bibles in the seats around you. If you need a Bible, the words are on the screen. What if I told you this morning that you could be part of the answer to someone's prayer? That's, that's quite a thought. I mean, after all, most of the time when we think about prayer and we think about others praying and, and, and it's, it's usually asking others to pray for us or, or perhaps we praying for other people, but I think we rarely think of ourselves as part of the answer to someone's prayer. Well, as we look at the third part of Jesus' high priestly prayer this morning, I want us to, to think about that. I want us to, to realize that as we look at the words of Jesus, as we look at this prayer, that we have a part to play. He's praying for the church. And he's laying out his desire for God's church. And when that's made known to us, when we hear the text speak, then, then you and I are in a position where we have to make a decision about what we're going to do with the text, about how we're going to respond to the text, the Word of God. And so the question before us as we look at this is, will I be a part of the answer to our Savior's prayer? So look at me at John chapter 17, verse 20. And this is what Jesus says. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for, also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made them known I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Well, we come to the end of what's called the farewell discourse. Chapters 13 through chapter 17 are Jesus' farewell discourse. Uh, what he's simply doing is preparing his disciples for his departure, the, the time in which Jesus will be physically absent from them, where, where they await his return, he's going to go to the cross, be crucified, and, and then after he rises from the dead and he appears to the disciples and many more, he will then be taken up into glory. And Jesus' disciples need to know how to live in between his coming. And what we have here is perhaps the biggest window into the intimacy that existed, that's always existed, between the Father and the Son. We're, we're eavesdropping, so to speak, on God the Son pouring out His heart to God the Father. 
And so far what we've seen is that Jesus has prayed for his glory, and not, not in a selfish way. He's, he's prayed for the, for the glory, the mutual glory that he shares with the Father. In verses, that's in verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prayed for his immediate disciples. He prayed for the 11 that were remaining. He prayed for, for their sanctification, their protection, their engagement with the unbelieving world. I mean, that, that just carries over into us as well. But now, when we get to these last seven verses, here we have a request that is for all believers throughout all time, all who have been believers and all who will become believers. And we see that in verse 20. This is what he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their work. And it's it's sort of staggering when you stop and think about it. Not only is Jesus praying for his immediate disciples, but he's praying for everyone who would become a believer throughout the centuries. He's praying for you and for me. If if you're a Christian, Jesus has been praying for you for over 2,000 years. For all eternity, those whose names are written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life have been on the mind in the hearts of Jesus. He's always been interceding for those who have and will put their trust in Him by faith and, and those who have believed in the Word. Those who, again, have heard the message of the Gospel, have responded to it. Those are who Jesus is praying for. He's very specific in this section, John 17, that He's not praying for the whole world. He's not praying for everybody. He's praying for those who belong to Him, those whom. John would tell us the Father has given to the Son. That's that's who Jesus is praying for. So this last section of Jesus' what we call his high priestly prayer, it's for you. It's for us. And and, and what you'll notice this morning, that Jesus' prayer for all believers in these verses consists really of two, two requests, two desires that he has. Two things that he brings before the Father and he asks for. The first one is that he desires that all believers will be united in him. He desires all believers will be united in him. This is really the second time that Christ prays for unity in John chapter 17. He's he's concerned about people's holiness. He's concerned about their love. He's concerned about their mission. But, But in his final earthly prayer, he makes it a point. His transcending concern is the unity of his people, the, the unity of his church. I mean, in verses 21 and 22 and 23, I mean, it's very, very explicit that they may all be one, that they may be one even as we are one, that they may become perfectly one. It's the overarching theme. It's the overarching concern that Jesus has. He's, he's about to go to the cross. He's in probably about to enter into his deepest moments of agony. And if he can think of one thing that he must pray for, that he desires for his church, it's for his church to be united. Now, of course, there's a sense in which when we become believers, we, we already are united by the Spirit. The Spirit unites us. The, the Spirit brings us together. We have that inherent unity that the Father has given to us. And so it's not that we have to sort of put together unity from scratch, but we're so more so called to preserve that unity, to build that unity, to foster that unity, to protect that unity. So this is what Jesus prays for. Now, if he's praying for a, 
a supernatural unity, probably it's helpful for us to maybe state what Jesus doesn't mean, what he's not asking for, so that there's no confusion. He, he doesn't intend for us to compromise the truth. You know, sometimes unity, we can think of unity as just, just everybody meeting at the lowest common denominator. But it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to have all of us just meet together at the lowest common theological denominator and, and, and not hold to any foundational truths. But the reality is, those truths are foundational to our unity. Our unity is expressed in our adherence to the Gospels as seen so clearly in the Scriptures. As seen by taught by the Apostles. So, so he's not praying for unity based on our on our own personal opinions of who God is, but a unity that's, that's based really on who God is revealed in and through His Word, in and through His disciples and His apostles. We are the people who believe on Jesus through the Word of His disciples. We believe that God has revealed Jesus in the Bible. And so our unity, when we, we heard the truth, began then. The truth about God conveyed through the Word of the disciples, and our unity continues on that. Basis. It's the foundation that binds us together. It's the, it's the truth of the gospel, the all-abiding all principle of the gospel, the reality of the gospel. And, and the, the thing is that churches are diverse places. We, we bring together people from all different backgrounds, all different preferences, opinions, hobbies, vocations, and we shouldn't ever try and obscure that as if we want everybody to fit into a certain type of mold, um, all of us know and understand that we're sinners deserving of God's punishment, but we've, re- we've received His grace, we've believed, we've trusted in Him through the word of the apostles, and so we share in common something that transcends all of our other differences. It's more powerful than a common interest or shared experience. We share Christ. We don't need to compromise the truth in order to be unified. Our, our unity doesn't come from de-emphasizing God's truth. It doesn't come from de-emphasizing our own unique differences, but it comes as we emphasize the truth of the gospel. Now, if we ask the question, so what is the unity that Jesus is talking about here? I believe that unity is really paralleled uh, to the unity that exists within the Godhead. We look again at verses 21 through 23, that they may all be one. Listen to this, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as, here it is again, we are one, in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And so here it is, the unity Jesus asked for is a unity of relationship. It's receiving a new identity as one with Christ. I mean, we're, we're being, in essence, swallowed up in fellowship with God himself, his son and his spirit. Christian unity is really a result of entering into this deep and abiding relationship with the Godhead, with a relationship that has existed in the Trinity. It's helpful to know that this has always existed. I mean, there's never been a time when it hasn't. It wasn't as if God created us because He was lonely or He needed some more people around. He's always had perfect fellowship with the Son and with the Spirit, coexistent, perfect, unhindered fellowship. 
So, Jesus describes the foundational relationship between the Father and the Son. The, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. And then he sort of goes on to describe the relationship between believers in the Son. The Son is in believers, and believers are in the Son. And as a result, believers are in the Father. So, so you see then how, how Christian unity is rooted in our relationship with, with Jesus. And so if, if we refuse to to develop and foster deep abiding relationships with other Christians, then, then we're ignoring the very fact that, that we as believers are in Him and He is in us. Now, our relationship is not exactly the same as the relationship between the Father and, and the Son. I mean, the Father and the Son, they're distinct persons, but they're, they're eternally uh, one in essence, where we, on the other hand, we're brought into a relationship with them through faith. We, we are placed in Christ, and the, the Spirit of Christ comes to live in us. And so by virtue of Jesus' death, his, his burial, His resurrection, we enter into this deep and abiding relationship, this never-ending relationship with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit. And so if you think about the church, you think about the Godhead, Think about the Trinity. The Trinity models for us, in a sense, what it means to be the church. I mean, just as the Father and the Son are distinguishable, yet perfectly unified, so we, though different, with different gifts and backgrounds and preferences and appearances, are perfectly united in and through Christ. there's, There's unity, there's diversity in the Trinity. There's unity and diversity in the church. So if there's, this, if there's a river of love that is eternally flowed between the members of the Trinity, then we find our unity with one another by immersing ourselves in it. When we get so close to Jesus, we become immersed in His love. And well, the result is that we can't help but love one another. I mean, John would say in his first letter to John that that is... That is one of the true marks of Christianity, that that we love one another. There's a genuine, tangible love for each other because of our faith in Jesus Christ. The church in the city of Philippi was experiencing a bit of a problem with disunity. If you read the book of Philippians, you know it's just one of the major themes that they were having trouble with that. They were disagreements. They were having conflict. And, and so, so Paul, he, he says, hey, this is a good church, but, but you guys need to get over these hurdles. You need to make progress. You've done well. How do you do a little bit better? And so he writes a letter to them trying to help them work out this conflict. And here's what he says to them in Philippians 2, verses 2 and 4. He says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So in other words, he says, listen, hey, don't fight, don't, don't argue, but instead... Be humble and have unity. The antidote for disunity in the church continues in verse 5. The Philippians, he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. 
And he goes on to describe the humiliation of Jesus, how he came as a servant, how he was put to death as a criminal. And all of this, he's trying to get to the point that the only way to draw closer to one another, the only way to grow in unity as Christians, is to become more like Jesus. Because our unity is based in and empowered by Jesus alone. So, so, so to foster unity is not just, to, it's not just having more potlucks, it's not, it's not just finding out, you know, principal steps for, for dealing with conflict. It's not just hanging out more with one another. It's not just putting aside our differences. But part of the unity of the church grows as you grow in holiness. As you become more like Jesus. As you become more righteous. As you take the sin in your life and put that to death, then a natural result of that is you become more unified with the body of Christ. Christian unity is a unity of relationship, but it's also one of, it's one of mission. The, the context of this passage is the mission Jesus had given his disciples. As believers discover their unity of one another in their union with Christ, they discover a unity of mission. The, the Father and the Son are unified in their desire to see people saved, to see people rescued from their sins, to see people saved from death. That's why Jesus came after all, and, and as each church draws closer to Jesus, their unity is displayed in a common dedication to the mission of Jesus. One of the things you'll notice in this passage is that Jesus highlights that by their unity, people will know something. They will know that the Son has been sent from the Father. And, and so it's so clear that in order for the gospel to spread, in, in order for a church to proclaim the gospel, the unity has to take place. That's how people know that the Son has been sent to rescue them. And so, so like a nation whose homeland has been attacked by an enemy, the vision of the church is to focus more precisely on the mission that they've been given. All of the distractions will sort of fade as a common passion develops to see people rescued from their sin. The, the unity of relationships spills out and overflows into this mission and people will hear the truth about Jesus from the mouths of people who live for Jesus and love Jesus, people who have responded to Jesus. Now, perhaps it's helpful if we just sort of fill in this picture a little bit. If you think about a unified church, what does a unified church look like? And, and here's uh, perhaps some evidences of, of what a unified church looks like. You know, the first is that there's this shared commitment to biblical instruction. I mean, unity is not a byproduct of discussion and diplomacy. Rather, unity flows from a commitment to the Word of God, first and foremost. In John 17, 22, Jesus uses the word glory in the sense of revelation. The disciples are people who have received the revelation of God through the ministry of Jesus. And, and so His glory, this glory, came not only through His person, and not only His works, but it came through His Word. His glory is parallel to His Word. And so we, we have to be the ones who continue to hold firmly to the revelation, hold firmly to the revealed glory of God passed down by the disciples. And when you consider the, the history of the church, particularly the high tide moments when 
church had the, the most impact on the world. Go to Book of Acts, for example. We see the church exploding. In Acts chapter 2, three things really merge together. The, the impact on the world, the unity of the church, the commitment to the Word. Listen to how it's described. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held things in common. So I I think just, just practically speaking, every church member needs to get to the point where they're willing to ask what does the Bible say? And not just ask, what does the Bible say, but really commit to obey it no matter what. And, and when the church does that, the church experiences unity. There will never be unity within a church when the Word of God is neglected. When the, the good seed of God's Word is no longer spread, you will not find unity. You, instead, you'll find gossip and selfishness and conflict. And so the only power of God through His Word that can exist in a church is when a church is committed to that Word. I think another sort of evidence of a unified church is really this shared understanding of our new identity. I mean, over and over again, we see the fact that believers are described as those who are in Christ. I mean, after all, He's the true vine, and at the moment of salvation, we're placed in Him. And so so our strength, our guidance, our nourishment comes solely from the life-giving connection to Him. At salvation, we have this new position, we have this new identity. As Paul would would say in in Galatians, it's no longer I who who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And now the, the life that I live, I live by faith. And the one who loved me and gave Himself for me. In his book, Confessions by St. Augustine, who's a, this was in the 4th century, a long time ago, he's, he tells about a renowned philosopher who turned to Jesus and at the service when he made a public declaration of faith, because of his new identity in Christ, he wanted a new name. He wanted a new name. I'm just a compelling picture of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ because you receive a new identity. And what comes with that new identity is a new community of brothers and sisters whose identity is found in Christ. It makes us a family. Three times in our text, Jesus says the word Father. So, So you and I are brought into the family of God through the work of Jesus Christ. We're so we no longer relate to one another as strangers, but we relate to others as family members. Christian unity is people from all ethnicities and countries, social circles, becoming family members. It means caring for each man in your church as you would for a brother, treating each woman with the respect you would for a sister. There's also then this shared pursuit of sacrificial love. That's another mark of of that loving each other. We're brought into the love that exists between the Father and the Son. Twice in this passage, we're told that believers will know and experience that God loves us with the same love He has for the Son. Now, there's, there's no way, there's no way this, this understanding of God's supernatural, selfless, sacrificial love can do anything other than an overflow into our relationships with others. 
And, and so our love for one another is reflected as we bear one another's burdens. Galatians would tell us as we instruct one another, Romans 15, as we forgive one another, Ephesians 4, as we pray for one another, James 5, as we submit to one another, Ephesians 5, as we encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 4, as we provoke one another not to anger but to love and good works, Hebrews chapter 10. We could go on and on, but there's all these one another statements. There's all these responsibilities to one another. So you have to get to the point where you realize that Christ loved himself and gave himself for the church. He died for the church, and so you must love the church. Again, in a real, tangible way. And, and Christ is not praying for us to embrace a concept, but, but really a, a conduct. He wants us to live lives that are marked by unity. A, a unity that leads us to walk hand in hand with one another. When one family member hurts, we, we don't just take note of it. We, we hurt as well. When a, when a sister feels rejected, we accept her. When a brother begins to stumble, we pick him up. Real unity requires breaking a sweat. It, it takes effort. It demands sacrifice. It's not something that really can be done in and through you in one hour on Sunday morning. I think the last sort of evidence of, of unity in church is just a shared discontentment with selfish division. Unity is always moving forward. It's striving for perfection. Um, he, he prays that we'll be completely one. And the word completely doesn't mean spotless, but contains the idea of pursuing the highest degree of unity. It doesn't mean that there won't be problems. It doesn't mean there won't be conflict. It doesn't mean there won't be anything to apologize for. But it means that there is this all-out pursuit for unity. It keeps the target in front of us. It's, it's never content. It never gets to the point that says we're unified enough if if somebody is, is living out of step with the truth of the gospel, we, we bring them in because it hurts the unity of the church and we don't allow those things to, to take over. Disunity and broken relationships are like poison in the church and we can't be content until every last drop of division is gone. And that doesn't mean getting rid of someone or, or leaving ourselves, but dealing biblically with division. Because the reality is there should be no safer place than the church. The church should be the place where differences are worked out. The church should be the place where there's healing and reconciliation. There should be no safer place for a child of God than in the church. It should be an attack-free zone. And so we have to get to the point where we ask, are we going to make this place a place where we deal with differences and disagreements? so that Christ would be glorified. Now that's Jesus' first request. It's sort of his overarching request for his people to be unified. It was that important to him that as he's getting closer and closer to the cross, his last earthly prayer, really his last moment with his disciples before he's crucified, that this is what he's asking the Father for. He says, Lord, unify them. Secondly, he prays that they will be reunited with him. Christ desires that believers will be reunited with Him. Christians experience a unique union and fellowship with Jesus right now, but it's, it's only a shadow of what we'll experience in all of eternity. 
it's just a glimpse. Look again at verses 24 through 26. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I'm going to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is telling us is that in, in his Father's house, we will see his glory. You remember the, the beginning of this, he, he said, I, I, I prepare a place for you. I've prepared a place for, for believers to, to be with me forever, to be in the Father's house. And, and when that happens, we will see the full display of divine goodness. We will experience the splendor of Jesus Christ fully unveiled. And, and we only get a small taste of it now. Through His Word and by His indwelling Spirit, we have a hope of the future where we will experience the full delight and joy of unhindered fellowship with our Savior. John Calvin describes the difference. He says that the, at that time they saw Christ's glory as someone shut up in the dark sees a feeble and glimmering light through small cracks, but Christ now wants them to go on to enjoy the full brightness of heaven. But even more important than what he said, the Apostle John put it this way in his first letter. He said, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. There's something to look forward to. That there will be a day when we will see Him as He is. And we don't know exactly what He's going to look like. We don't know exactly what that will be like. But it will be revealed to us in the future. We'll see Him as He is. We'll worship Him face to face. What What a privilege. What a promise. We who know Jesus, who've been received into His family, we are going to go home. We're going to go to a home unaffected by problems and divorce and abuse and sin. A place, a home that that is perfect, that hasn't felt the effects of the fall. We're going to a home where we will forever experience perfect and complete harmony because we're going to the Father's house. Joni Erickson Tata tells a, a wonderful story in one of her books about a a little boy named Jeff. Here's how she described it. She said, at the end of a five-day retreat for families affected by disabilities, a microphone was passed around so that all the participants could share a couple of sentences about, about how their time was meaningful to them and how fun the weekend was. And, and this little freckled-faced, red-haired Jeff raised his hand, and everybody was so excited because, because they felt that during that time, they, they, Jeff had won their hearts at the family retreat, and here he was, a little boy with Down syndrome, and he took the microphone, he put it up to his mouth and said, let's go home. Later his mother told Joni Erickson Tata, his dad couldn't come to the family retreat because he had to work, and he really missed his dad back home. He was longing to be home with the father. It won't be long until we get to go to home. And, and in that home will be all of our brothers and sisters in Christ 
for all eternity, so we really should try and get along now if we're going to spend eternity with each other. It's not much longer and we'll forever enjoy peace and unity in the Father's house. In just a little while, we'll experience the uninhibited love that the Father and the Son have shared before the foundation of the world. And the thing is, you and I can begin to experience it here. The, the church, in a sense, is a little taste of heaven, or at least it should be. When people with different preferences, hobbies, jobs, genders, backgrounds, skin colors, accents, taste, political positions, love one another with a, a surpassing love, it opens a small window into heaven. The love of God assures us that we have a home and a country on the other side of the sea. The knowledge binds us together. It spills out into the love that feels strangely foreign but still familiar. When people see this love displayed in a million little ways, they will hope it's real. And when the hope is confirmed, they'll understand the story is true. They will know that Jesus lives and that Jesus loves. But how will people ever see it? The church isn't unified. The church isn't loving one another. The question we end with is simply, what is to be your part in this area? What are you going to do? Obviously, you can't change the whole church, but as one writer puts it, you can begin in your own life to be the answer to the high priestly prayer of Christ. You can become a small focus of change. Let's pray. Father, we receive from the mouth of Your Son His desires for us. So may it be that what He desires for us would be our desires, that they would become our desires, that we would adopt them as our own, that we would that we would put unity before us as something to always strive for as a congregation and seeing our, our own responsibility, our own part in this, while at the same time longing, longing to be whole with you. So help these things, Lord, to be a foundational reality in our lives. And we ask this in the name of the Son. Amen.